Hello, and welcome to this episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and I'm so excited that I get to be once again joined by Tony Tresca. Hey there. This is a podcast where the horrifically nerdy meets the terrifyingly academic, as we explore that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is for better or worse, giving us nightmares. And we are so excited to have you join us on our continuation of the Friday the 13th franchise for Friday the 13th Part 7, The New Blood. I'm glad that you stressed the word the in the the new blood because <laughs> I thought those of you be. that listened, yeah, those of you that listened to our last discussion where we hadn't yet seen this film knew that I was already not in a good way curious about why why they were emphasizing new blood with the article the. I feel less certain that I have an understanding of the answer now that I've seen the film because I just don't I don't understand so much. I mean, I. It's the new blood is supposed to, I, I guess, refer to, to Tina and this. And is her... it or is it like all the new blood that's being spilled? Ah, ah, I see. I, well, that that's another interesting interpretation of the title. Yeah, it, you know, they've been on quite the journey with their titles in the last little bit. And, and some of it's not their fault. They tried to end the franchise that didn't work. They had to bring back the franchise and keep chasing alive. And then yep. find ways to keep being able to keep him alive, despite the fact he's very much dead. But I, I definitely think that much of the problems I have with this film can be summarized by just saying I'm very confused about the title because it doesn't get much better from there. But before we go there, for those people who have not yet seen Friday the 13th Part 7 and or those who've seen it but may not remember it because it might be one of the more forgettable ones. Uh, Tony, would you give a, a brief summary? Absolutely. So Friday the 13th, part seven, follows Tina Shepard, who is new member to the franchise, who is, I, I, I set this up like I was going to do a joke, but she's actually experiencing childhood abuse. So this is not a funny topic. And during this abuse, she realizes that she has telekinesis powers. Think Carrie, because the script writers certainly do. And she kills her dad using these psychic powers while he's in the middle of abusing her mom. And then she grows up, we see her later, and she is haunted by the trauma of this. And so an experimental therapist, let's call him Mm -hmm. that, decides it would be good for her to come back to this home and spend some time here. And it's a lot for her and during an episode, during after one of their therapy sessions, she accidentally uses her psychic powers to raise Jason from the dead out of the lake and unleashes him on a killing spree once again. And yeah, that's Friday the 13th, part seven. <laughs> yes, that is a really good assessment of it. And then and you're like, but what could possibly happen next? And then weird things happen. It's, it's, a, it's an intriguing film. It's also a film that does not have a lot of scholarship, right? Which this probably that is, is not surprising. In fact, 
doing, you know, and that doesn't mean, and I always want to say like, that doesn't mean there isn't some source out there that I just couldn't find in my, in my search. But it does mean that by several pages into Google Scholar, it still was <laughs> coming up with very, very little because this is a film within a franchise that's just not received a lot of attention. And again, like you said, not surprising. So actually the, yeah. t- the two things that I have to reference are we're going back to the horror homeroom uh, because they do have that, that special issue on Friday the 13th. And this is not even a piece about New Blood or The New Blood. It's actually a piece called... Yeah, get the title right. I know. I have to get I better put that done there. It's a piece by Todd K. Platts. And the first part of the title is actually in quotes itself because it is a quote. And it says, it's worth recognizing only as an artifact of our culture, critics of the Friday the 13th franchise, 1980 through 2001. So what Platts is doing really is... He is offering an examination of the critical reception of this particular franchise, which is really interesting to read and and I think fun because it clearly Platts had to dig through a lot of reviews that were just not online at the time. And the section on The New Blood says, by The New Blood, the creative personnel behind the Friday the 13th series tried to throw a new wrinkle into that familiar plotline that critics so abhorred by pitting Jason against a young girl with telekinetic powers. Critics were not impressed. Kevin Thomas called it Jason meets Carrie, while also signaling tiredness toward Friday the 13th cinematic world when he said, you'd think that as a summer resort, Camp Crystal Lake would be about as popular as Chernobyl. Thomas also made fun of Jason's puritanical moves, saying, each summer, the presence of teenagers making out triggers, I'm sorry, making out triggers Jason's rampages, filling Paramount's coffers. Another critic, Karen James, took a similar tone when referring to the film's final girl as a, quote, hairy clone named Tina, whose telekinetic powers should make her Jason's match. James further posited that the Friday the 13th transformed from a slasher film into a long-running serial about an oddball but familiar neighborhood, which I think is intriguing. Uh, and then Platts points out, but even though they, they thought they were making this big sort of change by adding Tina in, that Variety seemed not to have noticed the change saying that New Blood contained, quote, the familiar monster wrecking familiar havoc equals strong initial BO. That was formula in both content and execution. So that's what the critics' response was to the film at the time, and that's what Platt sort of has to offer. And then it, just to let you know, Tony, I was looking through the rest of the article, and then there, there's a line that says, whatever patients critics may have had dries up completely with, and then we'll get to that film in a bit. So that's exciting. Journey's ahead of us. But... But you can see, I'm like more curious about those. I, these are at least more interesting to me than like the last film well, that we watched in which he just kind of like comes back. You, I, I know you like that. I know you liked the last one. I have been getting bored. I'm at least enjoying that they're just like being like, you know what? Our franchise isn't that interesting. So we're just going to like grab bag a new thing and we're just going to like shake it up and see what works. Like, okay, Carrie. Yes. Manhattan. Yes. Hell. Awesome. (laughs) Freddy Krueger. Yes. (laughs) I will say that it is perhaps a sign that people should have like acknowledged when you're right, when they're like having to turn to at one point another franchise's character altogether to bring back life into this. And they actually, the film's producers, wanted to bring Freddy Krueger in for this film. So they wanted oh. to do Freddy versus Jason 
on the seventh one. However, they were not able to like do that negotiation. Um, Interesting. Until New Line bought the rights to the franchise, and then they were able to obviously come together right, for right. Freddy vs. Jason, which we've talked about on the pod before. So you can go we and have. check out. And I, you know, I had seen that film a couple of times uh, before, even before we watched it for the podcast. But I, of course, had never seen it, having seen all the the Friday the Thirteenth. And part of me wants to go back and watch it and see if, like, this time I had all root for Jason because I've just never really been interested in, in his plotline as well. So I, I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go back and, and watch it in our in our journey. The the other scholarship is is one we've referenced, which is a, a great book worth checking out if you're really invested in the Friday the 13th franchise. Now that is the book by Wickham Clayton called See, Hear, Cut, Kill, Experiencing Friday the 13th. This came out in 2020 and it's sort of the definitive, certainly the only book, uh, guide to just sort of thinking about the franchise and it includes some some really impressive like glossaries of characters and things like that and in there he he talks a little bit about new blood and just says the new blood is a muddle of alternating perspectives as it tells a story overtly about psychic phenomena and the supernatural but it simultaneously incorporates a darker sensibility in both emotional affect and cinemographic palette and i do think that the clayton's right there that this film does feel visually much darker because it is uh and and there are some things that i i liked about six the sort of humor that i thought they'd finally figured out after having not at all figured it out for five that they just sort of there was really no humor in in this film no there it really isn't i think we we talked about there was a lot more almost postmodern, like meta humor in the last Mm -hmm. one all that's out the window here it's we're back to playing this formula as essentially straight. Yes. with And we don't even have the sort of oddball characters shoved in as, as the random kills, right? Like the, the mom and son no. from the, the trailer park that we had, or even, you know, um, some of the more memorable campers in some of the first three films. We've even lost that. So we're really playing this. You're so very right as a very straight narrative, which perhaps we should have known that because like you said at the beginning you know tina's not suffering from something lightly right the the film does open with us knowing that her dad is physically abusive and a drunk and she also kills him so you know there is a true a darker tone definitely and you know i i would say that scene is that as individual aspect while being like obviously fairly contrived is actually fair i also think one of the better aspects of the movie i don't i think that that opening sequence is fairly suspenseful and the discovery of her psychic powers. I mean, I don't, I like to not do very much research before I yeah, watch the movie itself. And so that then I can kind of be like, and then after the fact, I'll learn too much about it. Uh, <laughs> but I, I do like to, I like to like have that a bit of surprise. So when the reveal comes that she, I thought what was about to happen was Jason was bursting out from under sure, and was like sure. going to come take her dad. I was like, oh, that's an interesting, this is a, I, this is kind of a funny cold opening. But then it was not that at all. It was this still very serious moment. And, and then I think that this story is just weird in the fact that it is also on top of that and trying to do and grapple with those serious themes it also has like a Jason story in like the B plot. Yes. Of the whole running throughout. Yeah. I I want to say I actually 
disagree with you about the opening because you know how I feel about children and especially children, children actors, actors that are not, you know, always the best. And it's not her fault. She was, you know, she was cast. It works. But part of me was disappointed when she didn't get killed by Jason because she was admittedly, I know she's going through trauma and stuff, but she also shouldn't be out on the boat. Like, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable behavior. And I actually thought that Jason like had pulled his way with his little rock at first. And, and, and so it's an interesting place to begin in part because I want to talk about something you said before we started recording. And that was one of the best parts of the film is actually that little montage at the beginning where yes. we're getting all the background. The true beginning. Yes. And so it's interesting that we we start with this reminder that this is a Friday the 13th film and therefore a Jason film very explicitly because that's what fans want. And then, like you said, the, the Jason narrative is, is the B plot. And I have so many questions about that opening sequence anyway. Like, who's the narrator? Who is this old man, <laughs> you know, talking? And like, why is he old and wise, but also like really rather informed? And you could tell that some of the... Oh, go ahead. And it also had a bit more of the tone of the last movie on it, too. In the way that, like, all these kills are being, like, jump cut together to, like, this really upbeat kind of music. And they're featuring some of the sillier kills, too. Along with, obviously, like, the super gory ones, like, Tomahawk and stuff. But, like, they... Yeah. But what was interesting about the kills that it's reminding us have happened is first, we're going to find out that this film is not going to be nearly as inventive with its kills. But also, most of the footage that we saw was either clearly filmed for this montage or it's like they didn't have full permissions or something because we don't actually see the scene with the couple having sex and the spear penetrating through the bed. We just see the spear penetrating through the bed or we don't see the actual person in the wheelchair being pushed down the stairs. We just see the wheelchair. And so there it, there were some weird things happening that just kind of told me that this film was going to be going places. And it did, just not the places promised in that introduction. Yeah, it does. It, it Sadly, for the rest of the film, does have the best kills of the entire movie right then and there. Yeah. And it doesn't get any better than that. Which, you know, it's interesting. I was looking, this has, it seems fairly split in terms of like the kind of reaction to this film there is a lot of people who just really are very apathetic towards this one and just think this like fans of the franchise seem to just like this is a movie that exists it has jason in it it also has the tina as the lead who is not super tied to the rest of the franchise that much and so like fairly forgettable but then there's also fairly there's a fairly devoted community I found that is very pro Tina and that and that wrinkle and the psychic aspect being introduced into the franchise and I I don't know I think I like the psychic aspect more than I am bored by the whole rest of the movie if that makes sense I I, I don't know I think it's interesting enough. And it does allow, it gives at least some interesting excuse for why all the teenage characters are actually like fully connected again in a way that like it had felt like with some of the other Friday the 13th, it was really just like a Jason's got to go out on the town and do some random killings. Yes. Whereas at least in this one, it kind of felt like, okay, there are actually characters here who know each other, who have names. This is a positive development for the franchise. Again, low, low. These are low bars that I'm talking yeah. about here. But yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, is that, you know, at its strongest moments, 
the franchise has worked hard to give us a character that we could not just have a name for, but sort of root for. And, you know, in the second film, it's the final girl from the first film who's isn't in it for very long. Right. But like, it's like, hey, I'm, I'm traumatized by this. And everyone's like, hush, you know, and in and then, of course, it's Tommy for several films. I, you know, I feel similarly to you and what you just said about it. You know, it's but it's kind of a, a low bar. I do know one of the things that people really appreciate about this film is that it's the introduction of, of Kane Hodder as as Jason and Kane yes. Hodder, who's a delightful human. I had a chance to meet him at a conference and he was just like so happy to be there, which is not always the case for some of those like Comic Con type things. But he was just like, hey, everyone, I'm so happy to be a part of this. Yeah. And I know a lot of people, he's their favorite. I think it's interesting to me that people have a favorite Jason because I understand why people have, for example, a favorite James Bond because James Bond is, you know, talking and delivering lines differently, right? I think it's very fascinating that people have favorite Jasons considering that he has no dialogue and, you know, is is primarily a body. And and, and that and clearly, you know, the argument is, is that different physicalities of Jason sort of change what personality he does have. So I do know that's a huge big plus in, in many people's books. And I would definitely I would definitely note that while the kills are not more they're not better executed. He Jason is all around more aggressive. And I would say his presence is a little bit more dynamic in comparison because like particularly during his like close combat action scenes. I think that's where I was able to notice the most difference, at least yes. physically between this Jason and any version. It's and what it's been two different two other Jasons but yeah. at this point too, right? Right, right. The one in the last one that they replaced. Right. And then the other yeah. I agree. I do think that as as much as it can be imbued into this character without dialogue, that the physicality of this Jason and also some of the makeup, right? Especially the body makeup is really, really lovely. They've and been experimenting with the Jason look these past They have. Films. They have. And they've been remembering that he is, you know, dead, right? At this point, like multiple times dead. So I think you're right that, you know, Kane Hodder, I can see why he's people's favorites. I, I think he's already becoming mine as well because he feels it's not just that he's lurking in the shadows, right? But he's like looming in the shadows. But that makes it, again, so strange to have it really be sort of the, the B-plot to the other things that are happening. And I want to go back to what you said about the kills, because it's interesting that you say and are correct that he's more aggressive, that there's lots of kills. But this was actually a pretty bloodless film compared to, certainly compared to Five, which was like geysers of blood happening everywhere. I don't know. It just felt a little sterile to me. Yeah, I've noticed that kind of coming up in like the criticism of this film as well is just that that a lot of critics have noted that this is nearly devoid of blood and gore by 80s slasher standards from one of the reviews of the time that the film came out and apparently it sounds like from doing some reading there were cut scenes that had a lot more blood it actually involved but it seems like they kind of those scenes just ended up for one reason or another kind of being cut and they're available on the box set of the DVD. So if folks are invested in seeing some more blood in part seven, go and get yourself yeah. a box set DVD of all the <laughs> films 
the, have the, the deluxe set. edition <laughs> and then you can see it. Okay, well then you yeah. you and Steph can you're good. That's right. That's right. <laughs> you know, I don't know that it, the solution is more blood per se, and I'm not saying that's what they say. I don't yeah. think it's more blood but but I I think for me when I think about the sterileness it's just that you know we've lost all of the sort of creativity. We've lost most of the originality. There are some kills in the other ones that are very very memorable and in this one it other than maybe when Dr. Cruz, you know, uses Tina's mom as a human shield. Yeah. None of it's particularly memorable. And even in that case, it's more memorable to just about like the horribleness that is Dr. Cruz. And I felt that way equally about the sex in this film. There's more sex in this film than it felt like there were in a couple of the last ones because there are more couples having sex. Yeah. But it, it just also felt very sterile and like better put this in there because they're expecting it including that scene where you know we have the the boob shot where the it's boob shots. Yeah, yeah where she like drops the you know the sheet and then she's like oops the daisy you know it just felt so formulaic which is a word we use frequently for friday the 13th yeah i mean i guess there's something to be said for creating the formula and doing it so well but it, it does feel i i i have remarked on that in our pre-show conversation of I was like, well, at least there's more sex to talk about. And but you're I think you're so right in that even though there is the presence of more sex, it doesn't make it any more real or like no. meaningful or, or like, interesting <laughs> or interesting. Yeah, I I agree. And that I think that silence that you had, that's like that's a pretty accurate just sort of like my feelings about this film that it it's not that I don't have thoughts. It's just they're all sort of lukewarm or tepid. Yeah. Except for I'm not sure I like Tina. I am pretty sure I found Tina pretty obnoxious. And again, like when I'm trying to be yeah. generous, she did suffer through some rather massive trauma. But like that first scene when she meets Nick, it is not his fault that her suitcase apparently doesn't know how to be closed. He comes over to help her and she's like, thinks a lot. And I'm like, what is happening? And then he's upset. He's like, he's like, oh, I really botched that one. And it's like, you did? And And she just kind of, like the number of times that she just loses it and has to leave a room. And I admit I was never a telekinetic teenager who had killed my father as a child. So I, you know, I can't walk in her shoes. But That's good. Yeah. Wouldn't that have been interesting if I'm like, as someone who has personal experience. As in, someone who relates incredibly personally to <laughs> Tina. I. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I just she just was more angsty than I needed for a character that was just being introduced to me for the first time. I felt like she was just as angsty as Tommy was in five and six. And at least in five and six, we'd already seen him in four be massively traumatized. Right. Uh, but I do think that they're at least gesturing at that with the opening scene. It is. I mean, and I, I think it's the best done in the opening scene. And I think that's the most I like Tina throughout the movie. Is in that opening scene. <laughs> And I think part of the reason I keep trying to give myself or give Tina rather the benefit of the doubt is that what she's going through with Dr. Cruz is really effed up. Right. And you you mentioned you use, use that word like therapist and you're like, sure, let's call him that. Yeah, this is this is an interesting character, particularly when we juxtapose him against similar figures that we've had in the Nightmare franchise and even in the Halloween franchise where, you know, we have Dr. Loomis who acts as this like inspiration and guide and then i'm thinking about this slightly creepy somewhere between father figure and lover that nancy has in whichever dream warriors i believe it's a 
creepy relationship in many respects, but even that one feels much better. I mean, this he's literally exploiting her. Like, yes. For, and her trauma. I think he even says the word exploit uh, at <laughs> one point. When talking, he's like, I'm trying, I'm like trying to exploit her memories or whatever to yeah. trigger the psychokinetic yes. um, reaction or whatever so he can train her or whatnot and harness that ability. And it's interesting. I do, I do appreciate, I thought it was fascinating, this idea of like the rhetoric that doctors can use to be able to get parents to agree to things that are reprehensible. I thought that was kind of interesting, uh, you know, because this mother keeps being told, you know, do you want your daughter to forever be in the hospital? Because if you don't, this is the only way to do it. That was really interesting. In fact, I think I would have been more interested in seeing some of that and yeah. maybe having fewer teenagers and because there were an awful lot of teenagers in that house. And, and I think I would have been more interested in seeing sort of this conversation of like who's the real monster the guy who's hacking up people in the woods or this this man who's who's exploiting it yeah yeah, a teenager and it's like they tried to get there but they just didn't go as far as they could have i i agree i think that that would have been a more interesting it might have been even potentially more just horrifying in general because i we do have we we do have a lot of teenagers I, they are more connected than a lot of the teenagers in the past. At least they have their own, like, established cliques and exactly. social dynamics within the house, which I think made the party scenes at least a little bit more entertaining yes, than they have much, been. much more. But, I, I, yeah, it is interesting just, like, how quickly, or I guess we're not, we're not shown any fight given to these experiments at all by the no. parental unit, so it's much, much delayed. I, I would like to have seen in this film if we're going to add in this this wrinkle of, of tina just being telekinetic really just kind of an examination of like of what is what is the bigger evil right and is it the system that allows for us to have people that can constantly put others in jeopardy and say that it's for science when you know really or or even worse that it's for someone's mental health right to, and to help them or the maniac in the woods who's indiscriminately killing people. That would have been really interesting. I, I think he's not indiscriminately he? killing oh people. I think he is like, I think in this one, like it really is like his Puritan is showing. We yeah. might as well like put like a little pilgrim hat on him and this one. And just, <laughs> like, can you imagine how funny that would be? Like, I would watch Pilgrim Jason coming out I would of watch the... a film that's about him going back in time to Pilgrim Times. Just... Putting that out there. Friday the 13th, the first Thanksgiving. Top notch quality film there. Although he does kill it, a couple actually, people. It would be so funny too. Uh, can you imagine how pissed people would be? What if they like then teamed up with like the indigenous people oh to like gosh. just murder like the colonizers yes. who came I... up like it's like a bloody Thanksgiving. <laughs> yes, I would be 100% there for that. Every moment of it. Because I can see him with his little like buckle shoes on and he's wearing the pants the end of the knee so he has to have stockings there's a lot of this that i agree with as just like there's like we'll have like a drone shot where like jason hops up on top of the of the thanksgiving table as like everything is like in chaos around him and he just rips a turkey leg eats it as he like throws a spear into some well and he'd have to use the bone right of of like the wishbone yes yes Yes. (laughs) (laughs) although I like the fact that we're making it also an 
anachronistically incorrect, you know, yeah. Thanksgiving too, because I, I met someone recently who decided she's a really fascinating person and she and her family decided that they were going to have an authentic Thanksgiving meal uh, one year. And she said, she said it was a rough, it was a rough meal, like <laughs> it was a real challenge to, to eat that. But if we, so if we make it anachronistic so that like, we're like, that's definitely not what was happening in that period. There definitely has to be some wishbone killing action. Uh, you know, he's got to be wearing the hat. I wish the hat came with the Puritan hair, you know, that like shoulder length curled under. Yeah. But I'm okay without that. But I think you're right that that's the good stuff. So, you know, people that are Peacock, because Peacock's making the TV show. If you want to have a flashback, that would be that a thing would I'd be, be a good willing flashback. To, to get behind. But we can't, right? We can't have him... If you and I mean, obviously, you know, but what I what I mean is, is like we can't have him siding with the indigenous people because then it would become a disaffirmative text. That is too true. And he's his films are utterly. Yeah. Uncritical. Yeah, I, I mean, people I would be like, not- oh, it could go back in time. They'd have no problems with that. They'd have no problems with the like the parts where history is not making sense. But where I think they would draw the line is something that, that actually articulates that maybe the system's the problem. Yeah, that is super true. Because they can only include broad gestures at that. Like in like the, the therapist scene. Like it's yeah. a gesture at that and like that the, that the medical system is broken. But it's not any real commitment. You don't actually have to read the, into that. It's like, it's a plot. It's just some plot point to further the kills. I, you know what I think is hilarious about these movies too? Is the grandeur of the people involved in them. And like, <laughs> the, it's time for a recurring set segment in these <laughs> episodes in which I just read you quotes from people involved in the film about oh what gosh, kind I'm of so film excited. they think that they're making. I'm so excited. This is delightful. So the original pitch for this was basically ripping off Jaws, if you can believe it. Actually, I can because there's a scene that's 100% while I was watching it. I'm like, this is shot by shot, the opening sequence to Jaws, except instead of the shark it's jason pulling her down it's jason okay? good so that makes me it feel was good. originally even going to be even more because there was going to be all about corporate land developers covering up the massacres to like build condos on crystal lake which i actually think i that i want to see i that. think that they made a mistake i yeah. think that that movie sounds also but it does sound more disaffirmative too doesn't it see and that's the thing because if we go back to that critic kevin thomas Right. He said, you'd think that people would stop going to Camp Crystal Lake because it's clearly not an OK camp to be at. But this would allow us to talk about the fact that, like, we are willing to ignore just about anything for capital gains. Absolutely. And oh, so I think bad. that would have been way more interesting. But because that was conceived by one of the associate producers, Barbara Sachs. But the executive producer, Frank McCuso Jr., he didn't like that idea. And so... He turns to screenwriter Daryl Haney, who who says he he pitches him this great idea. He's like, listen, man, there's always a teenage girl who's left to battle Jason by herself. What if the girl has telekinetic powers? And then the Barbara Sachs, she's like, that's Jason versus Carrie is an interesting idea. And it will allow our franchise to be more respectable than the previous injuries. Hanley huh. directly states, I want it to be unlike any other Friday the 13th movie, she wants it to win an Academy Award. <laughs> okay. Sorry, I shouldn't I shouldn't laugh at someone's dreams and ambitions, but also... That is true. That's what the producer, wow. Barbara Sachs, that's what she was sh- shooting for, and she thought that, that Daryl Han- Hanley's vision 
for this film, this one that we just got done talking about, and that uh, by this point, dear listener, you maybe have seen yourself. This film is the film that they hoped would win an Academy Award. Oh my gosh. Needless to say, it did not win an Academy Award. I think that's so weird that that they they thought they had a winner in which like the internal tagline is referencing another film and book, right? Like it's not like they came up with telekinesis. They were like, we're going to have Carrie meets Jason. Right, or even the concept of using it in horror, or even, like, the concept of, like, a character having it. It's, like, they're very much just being, like, we should get an Academy Award, because (laughs) we saw valuable, we saw a chance to maximize IP. Yes, yes. (laughs) Well, you know, some some years I do feel like that's not far from what the Academy's thinking about. It's not like they make smart decisions all the time. So who knows? Maybe she had an insider that was, like, guaranteed you do this. I will vote I, for it. <laughs> you know, I, I, I just, like, it's so funny because I feel like the general, like, consensus and vibe on these movies is like, oh, these are just, like, schmucky things that are made purely for, like, these are cynically made for cash, yes. like, cash grabs. But the more you, like, look into it, they're not. Like, the people who are making them, they are not trying to make these, like, formulaic, no. hacky, hokey films. They really do think they're making like yeah. high art, and they that's really what they're shooting think for. That they're they're changing the game of the franchise every time, yeah, every single time. And really, the winners here are paramount, right? Because they found people who are willing to devote their souls to creating something that that paramount could not count care less if it does well in any way other than financial, right? And you know it's what? Kind of sad. Like, it, it is super. It, it is. A, it is a little bit. But you know what's even sadder? It works like two the budget of two point eight million grossed nineteen point one million off of terrible reviews and terrible audience word of mouth. But it doesn't matter. No, and we've commented on this several times. We are just in such a different age of of cinema and theaters right now that you know I just know for a fact that they would never have been able to. This franchise would have never succeeded. Certainly post COVID cinema theaters. But even just maybe post internet, right? Like it is just so much easier to get people to see stuff when the only way that they can know whether or not it's good, because it's not like this was going to be regularly being reviewed by, you know, people like Ebert who hated this franchise with a passion, hate slasher films, hated slasher films too, with a passion untold. But like, this was the only way, right? Like if you wanted to, to talk about it, you had to see it. You couldn't go on to some, you know, blog. I just, this franchise is definitely, yeah, yeah. it is a, a product of its time. Before we wrap up, I want to talk about something that I had a problem with in the end of the film. Okay. I'm not I'm not keen on this idea of Tina being saved by her dad. Like, oh, yeah. No, I, I, I am 100% agree with you that the yeah. film like goes off the deep end when it decides to have this like redemption arc yeah. for her abusive, alcoholic, physically abusive, alcoholic yeah. father. Where he comes back as like this angel figure yeah, to like, but also drag. covered in mud, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, I I guess he is. I guess he's just supposed to represent. He's just a dead guy coming to drag yeah. Jason back to hell, but he's not in hell yet, not canonically. Yeah, not yet. <laughs> he he still has to go other places. Yeah, it's just really weird that 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 was the solution they had. I mean, they they could have had her mom, you know, come and play a part if we're gonna just be resurrecting parents at will. It just like. It seemed such a strange move to me that if this film is trying to offer this intriguing female character by Tina, 
of course they're going to rely on you know men rescuing her but like her abusive alcoholic dad i don't know that's too far i I think it goes back to this like parable theme that the movie is reveling with like the whole time where it's being like oh yeah like tina should feel bad because she murdered because she murdered her dad let's not like let's like let's not like dwell on the like abuse or like this like it's like tina should feel kind of out of it i makes total sense she is a monster like but so yes. it makes she's gotta she's gotta be fixed and you're like i don't like the thing you're setting up here yeah. because i think you're gonna pay it off because that's how these films work and they do and it's incredibly uncomfortable yeah i don't think you can get more affirmative than having it be there's a monster and it's clearly outside the community because even the lowliest of us in the community, the physically abusive alcoholic dad is still a savior compared to this horrible person killing people. And that just is so gross (laughs) in every way possible. And it just like, I had to make sure that we talked about that because it felt like if the film was making these efforts again, like you said, it's, it's one step forward and it's like 20 steps back when it comes to making these narratives be anything other than just, but good news, you know, puritanical Jason is is here to save the day until we decide that that's not okay. And then we'll go ahead and reaffirm how good society is. Yeah, it's the kind of, it's the kind of bold choices that I think could have won them an Academy Award. Thank you so much for listening to our discussion of Friday the 13th, part seven, the new blood. We hope that you enjoyed our conversation and you should know that we will be coming back to the Friday the 13th franchise for still quite some time as we have several more films for us to look at. Not as many as I thought, though. Really? I, I believe we just have Manhattan. We've got Hell. We've got Freddy vs. Jason, if we want to revisit that one. And then we've got the reboot. No, but... we have space too. And space. Oh, okay. One more. Yeah, yeah. One more. All so right. we have five. We have about is, five more. Yeah, which is not nothing, but also, you know, we're we're past the the tipping point. I, I'm keep waiting for them to like have thirteen, right? Like you would think that they would want to do a big thing with thirteen. But all of that is to say that you will not be able to escape us continuing to talk about Friday the Thirteenth. However, as we do, we're gonna take a, a break. What are we going to look at next, Tony? We're going to take a break to take you behind the mask for Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. Uh, it's a 2006 American mockumentary comedy slasher film. Kind of, it, it's a more comedic take on similar ideas that we've been discussing yes. via these franchi- these slasher franchises. Yes, I'm really excited. I, I adore this film and I'm really excited to get to talk to you about it, Tony. In the meantime, if people want to engage with us more, what should they do? They can get in touch with us via our email or social or social medias, which are in the description of this podcast. They can also check out some more of our episodes wherever you get podcasts, rate, review us, and recommend us to your friends. Excellent. And we have several really exciting things happening sort of in the works. We have several interviews that are with various creators and various people in the horror community. So just stay tuned for all of that. Thank you so much for listening to our nightmares. And have a spectacular day.